Welcome to Trying Days of the Journey, conversations with publisher Chris Milligan. I am Bruce DeTorres. With us is Sarah Whalen, author of Royal Vengeance, The Assassination of Princess Diana, and The Ancient Royal Cult of Human Sacrifice. Diana began life as we all do, then became a goddess to us in her goodness. We've seen such figures before. They are always killed. By whom? Why? Royal Vengeance answers these questions and more. Sarah and Chris, it's great to be with you both. It's good to be with you too. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah, for coming on. I tell you, I met Sarah in New Orleans and, and she came to some of the Oswald conferences and stuff. And then she mentioned that she had a book and I said, okay, well, you know, uh, and then she sent it to me and I was just uh, completely blown away. You know, I, I'm used to uh, doing some uh, dives, some, some deep dives. Sarah had to hold her breath an awful lot to do the depth of diving that, that she did into the subject. And I mean, I got a bunch of her uh, resource books and looked at them and I tell you, it's hard reading some of these old books because we just don't think the way they did uh, then. I mean, it's, it's, they're, they're very erudite, very, very thick. And uh, Sarah has made this subject very accessible uh, we put a little bit of it uh, online, and, and one of the first things that came back was somebody says, boy, this is very well written, and it is. So, you know, Sarah, I, I had a journey that, that, I, that took me here. Basically, my, my father told me some stuff I didn't believe many years ago, and so what brought you to this subject? I think I came from an erudite family. You know, my, my mother was a child psychologist and she had a full career at a time when women didn't work and she read a lot. She started herself in anthropology and then moved into psychology and psychotherapy. So there were always a lot of books on her shelf. And I remember, uh, you know, reading about Freud and reading about Jung when I was way too young to be reading any of this, I mean, I got a hold of Freud's interpretation of dreams and she had a box of Rorschachs on her desk. And I remember giving the Rorschach tests to my younger brother and my mother didn't yell at me. She was fascinated. And her father was an Episcopal a priest also extremely well-educated, both self-educated, but you know, he was the smartest person we'd ever encountered. He had tons of books on ancient history, biblical studies, and we found out later, I mean, I didn't know it, but he'd actually gone to the University of London, which, you know, for a guy who grew up in the wilds of Newfoundland, that was very surprising to me. And so, you know, they had always, they never stopped me from reading any of these books never stopped me from asking questions that I remember, you know, I think I'd seen a movie about Cleopatra on television. And I asked my grandfather about it. And he said, oh, she was just a horrible, horrible person. And he went into all this detail, you know, about her life. And I, I was just mesmerized by all of that. And my mother, when she found out that I had an interest in history, anthropology, esotericism, she got a catalog of Dover books, which were these old out of print books. And I could order as many as I wanted. The, the only 
limit was that I had to read everything I ordered. The sky was the limit. I was 12 years old. I was reading Velikovsky's Worlds in Collision. And Velikovsky, of course, was considered very radical in his day. But he was thinking outside the box. He was theorizing. And he always drew on everything, physics, higher mathematics, geometry. That opened a world for me. And, and my parents always encouraged it. I mean, I grew up in New Orleans, which has, even though we were Episcopalians, we were Anglicans, we lived in a Catholic culture that was very strong. And so I knew about all the saints, you know, my friends who were Roman Catholic, I knew their world was a lot different from mine. And I was always very curious about it. I would go to church with them just to kind of see what was happening there. I was also exposed to voodoo at a very young age. I had a thing for going through graveyards just to see historically who might be buried there because I was very interested in the history of New Orleans. And some of the older cemeteries, of course, they now say Marie Laveau, they're two family graves and there's a dispute about where she was actually buried. But I would see people leaving offerings at her grave one time I, I saw a, a beautiful African-American woman very carefully lay down a plate of food in front of the grave. My mother bought me some books. You know, one was Robert Talent's Voodoo in New Orleans, which gave, you know, a, a kind of popular history of Marie Laveau and, you know, what today they would call her cult, which is very widespread. But the kind of voodoo, you know, and then I started learning, well, there's voodoo in Haiti, there's voodoo here, there's what they practice in Africa, you know, and I saw this, this big kind of scheme of things. So I just started reading anything I could, and sort of putting it all together. And of course, I was very interested in, in kings and queens. I loved history. I love reading too. I mean, I remember I was in, uh, I think it was in ninth grade and I was reading a book called A Nation of Sheep. And this uh, teacher says, you shouldn't be reading that. And, you know, I, I really find this uh, interesting of, of your uh, background. Growing up in, in, in New Orleans, so you were familiar with, with Dr. Mary's monkey. Yes. Well, we knew the, the story of Dr. Mary, the book, and it's not just me, everyone who grew up in New Orleans loves that book because it opened a window on powerful families and, you know, especially on the Oshner family and what they might be up to. And a lot of what they did was secretive, but it, they grew into the biggest hospital in the state, one of the biggest in the region. And, uh, you know, it's tied in, of course, with Lee Harvey Oswald. And I mean, I went to high school with Jerry Eames, whose family, you know, had a, a different opinion of the Oswalds, but they lived next door to them for years. Yeah. And so we always grew up with stories of Oswald and Marina fighting. My mother, just the day after the assassination, my mother, who was a psychologist, was one of a group who was put together, I forget the guy's name, but he's the guy who went to uh, Dallas to interview Oswald in jail. So they were all going to kind of study Oswald and try to figure out what had happened. And I remember my mother telling me that her colleague said, you know, he wrote down on a sheet, 
Oswald is obviously paranoid because during the interview, Oswald was was pointing to the ceiling and the walls and, and his ears and going, shh, shh, you know, they're listening. And years later, of course, the FBI plays the tapes back for the psychiatrist who realized Oswald wasn't paranoid at all. I mean, we knew these people, our parents knew them. So it was intriguing for me. Yeah, it always amazed me, you know, when I got down to New Orleans, you know, and they, they would say, well, this is a, the largest small town in, in, in the country or, and everybody knows everybody's business. And I found that to be quite true. Uh, really you know, I know people who knew David Ferry. I mean, there most of them are not alive anymore. But there was a period of time where all this was extremely vital, which is why Jim Garrison, whatever else you want to say about him, people thought he was onto something. You know, he wasn't stupid. He may have had, you know, everybody has a Jim Garrison story. I even have a little tiny Jim Garrison story. When, well, I, when I got my law degree, I actually... I was given what they call the Jim Garrison Memorial Desk. They didn't have room for me in the regular office. So they had turned his office into a library. And he had this really beautiful old desk. And they sat me at it. And they're like, do you know where you're sitting? This is Jim Garrison's desk. And a woman who had been his secretary for a couple of years, she was still working in the DA's office. You know, if, if anything, if any conspiracy had to happen about Kennedy, New Orleans was really prime country for it. And, and everybody knew something. Nobody knew the whole story. And the one thing that I love about going to your conferences is there are so many people who are devoted to getting the story, putting it together like a jigsaw puzzle. And they've spent many years, their own money, their own time doing this. And the theories that they come up with, they're very remarkable. Very interesting. Well, speaking of jigsaw puzzles, I mean, let's talk about your book. And, and another, you know, reason why I've been always very intrigued about your book is, you know, because of the Kennedy assassination, because I've always seen that as a magical act, the, the killing of the king. You, you kill the king and you, and you take his power. And it's, you know, part of the ritual sacrifice that has been going on uh, for forever. And I mean, and you really nailed it here in your book. And it just, you must have come to me about, I don't know, six, seven years ago with it. And it's been a real struggle to get it out. And we're, we're putting it out basically a little bit at a time. And, and then the final book will all be out this December. But it's a tour de force. I mean, it, it really is an amazing book. And, you know, one thing that's happening is, is a bunch of our books are they're, they're all coming together and they're all about the same thing. This, these people that have done dirty to us and a change that is happening here where a bunch of us know that these people are doing dirty to us. And it comes to the question, well, okay, we know this now, what do we do? But explain your book. I mean, it, it's, it's deep. Your book is deep. It, it not only goes into the, you know, assassination of Princess Di, but goes into the you know, the background of these goddesses and, 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 and the history of these royal sacrifices that is kind of, as you put it in your book, something that's kind of, uh, it happens in England. It, it happens lots of places, but England is the one place where you have a substantial royal house still existing. And even though they don't wield power like absolute monarchs, they have enormous wealth. 
they have enormous influence and they represent the state. So you could say like ancient royalty has made accommodations, you know, to what we think is democracy. And you actually find, you know, there's very little democracy in any of these systems, you know, not in the popular uh, sense of the word. And, and the, you know, the temptation to go to kingship is really strong. I mean, it's an ancient practice. And the Romans wrestled with it. The Greeks wrestled with it. You know, what does it mean when you crown someone a king? When you do that, a whole bunch of esoteric elements come in. And I think the aim of democracy was to try to wash that out. But of course, we know that that's impossible because then you just have elites that rise up that are equally powerful and adhering to a lot of similar traditions that are very destructive. Ancient kingship, I mean, it, it goes back to the earliest humanity. I mean, gods, you see it on, on cave walls. You find little goddesses in, from the Ice Age. There was, and it, of course, it's very strongly tied to fertility and a sense that there is some power that is putting everything into motion. You let a few centuries go by, you have rulers of clans, priests who rule cults. It's in every country in the world. I, I don't think there's any country that's immune from it. But England, of course, has persisted. I mean, it only had a very slight period of experimentation with Cromwell. And even then they wanted to crown him. He wore a black hat and it had a gold band around the base of the hat, but below the, above the brim. And that was his crown. He couldn't wear it openly, but there was a debate and they wanted his son to come in and take his place when he died. And the funeral, I mean, they gave him a funeral of state that was just extraordinary. Right. This was not the funeral of an ordinary person, well, not an Cromwell, ordinary human being. Cromwell took over after they lopped off uh, Charles's head, right? Yes. And, you know, again, this is lopping off the head of a monarch used to be very customary. If you go back in ancient times, I and mean, if you go back to like Anglo-Saxon England, there seems to have been a cycle. In England, it's a seven-year cycle. In France, they say it's a nine-year cycle. Um, people who study, study these things, they claim that it's, it has to do with the rising and setting cycles of Venus. And they follow that. And if you look at a lot of architectural symbols, even from Rome, you'll see the cycle of Venus. There's, there's been a lot written about it. And I do give sources in the book for that. But the king had a choice. Every seven years, uh, he would have to die. And that's tied to a cult of fertility. And the idea is that his blood would fall on the earth and replenish it and life could continue. And uh, people thought that the cycle ended early. Uh, James Frazier, who for his time, he was a very radical scholar. He wrote a book called The Golden Bough. It's an enormous encyclopedic work in its original form. It's, there's abridged issues of it, you can get it. A lot of people say, oh, you know, James Frazier got everything wrong. I don't think so. He traced it back 
to these ancient fertility cults and their dianic. I, I talk about it in chapter three, which is coming up. Uh, Euripides wrote about it in the plays that he wrote about Iphigenia. Uh, Helen of Troy is kidnapped. You know, at the time she's not Helen of Troy, she's actually Helen of Sparta. And a prince of Troy falls in love with her, so he kidnaps her. And the people in Sparta are going nuts. I mean, it's not just that their queen has been kidnapped. It's what Helen represented. Helen, supposedly a half divine being, human, but the daughter of Zeus and phenomenally beautiful in every way, just extraordinary. And the Greeks didn't want to lose that. I mean, that was their window into a different dimension. They go to war for beauty because it's been taken from them. So Agamemnon, who's Helen's brother-in-law, he's got a, a navy ready to go, ready to besiege Troy to get his sister-in-law back. And while they're waiting on the beach, one of his men supposedly slays a deer and the deer is slain in a forest that's sacred to the goddess Diana and she's furious with them and they don't apologize for it. So the wind is stilled and their boats are dead in the water. They can't go. And a priest tells Agamemnon, the only way you're gonna get to go is if you have to make an apology to Diana. And Diana tells me that she wants the sacrifice of your daughter, Iphigenia. So Agamemnon sends a message to his wife, who's Helen's half-sister, and he says, uh, you know, I think it's time for Iphigenia to get married. She's going to marry a hero. So you need to bring her here to where I am on the beach. And uh, we'll have a wedding ceremony. Quick, quick, because we have to get to Troy. So Clytemnestra, who's his wife, she brings, she brings her daughter, Iphigenia. But, you know, they, they suspect there's a trick. But Iphigenia thinks she's going to be married to a princely hero. She's very excited. She herself is a princess of, of Troy. I, I'm sorry, of Sparta. And she walks to the altar. And what Agamemnon is going to do is kill her, on spill her blood on the altar and on the earth. And then the goddess will be propitiated. And supposedly the goddess then says, oh, you know, this isn't, this isn't fair. And she takes a deer, she does a switch. I mean, the Greeks, when they saw this performed on stage, it must have been just mesmerizing. They used to perform these plays of Euripides during the celebration of the mysteries. She does a switch instantly. The deer is then put on the altar. No one even sees it until Agamemnon has stuck his sword into its neck to kill it. And then at the same time, Iphigenia is transported to this barbaric place it's in what is the present day Crimea and the people worship a Diana, but it's, it's not her nicey nice aspect. It's her bloody kill for me aspect. And so any person who washes up on their shore is instantly, you know, they cut the head off. They spill the blood on this altar and then they hang the bodies. So everybody's there with the deer, you know, on the altar, they know something remarkable has happened. And then the winds come up and Agamemnon goes off to Troy. Meanwhile, Iphigenia lands in the Crimea on this island. And 
she is made Diana's high priestess. She doesn't kill herself, but she is in charge of selecting the sacrifices and overseeing the executions of these people and cutting their heads off, spilling the blood all over the altar. Years later, her brother and a friend show up on the island. The brother has killed Clintimestra, his mother, because Clintimestra killed Agamemnon after the switch. So they recognize each other, the brother and sister. And Athena, the other goddess says, you need to take the statue, you need to steal it from the Crimeans and bring it. Euripides says, bring it to Greece. Other editions say, bring it to Rome. And where Fraser picks up the story in his book, The Golden Bough, is that they bring this statue to Rome, but the Romans are so scared of what they call the Tauric Diana, who's the really bloodthirsty, murderous, scary person. They put it on the outskirts of the city. They don't want it. Years later, they did bring her. Uh, there's a hill on the Aventine where you can see an old temple of Diana. It was broken up and pieces of it are in various Christian churches. They're also on the curbs of the street. If you look down when you're crossing the street, you'll see chunks of marble that were taken from her temple. But they brought her to this Lake Nemi place in a wood and there was a temple built to her there. The deal they make at the end of Euripides' play uh, is that the goddess Diana tells the three of them, Iphigenia, her brother, and the friend, you bring this statue back, put it in a grove, and sacrifice to me once a year a man by taking a sword and cutting his neck. Now, some anthropologists say, well, that's, that's kind of like circumcision, but of the head. But, you know, they just made like a little cut. But other people say, no, they cut the head off. And it was a scary place and people didn't want to go there. It's only much later you get, like, I think Caligula actually loved going there and built himself a villa. You can still see it. Her temple is still there. But the idea was someone could be king of the wood for like a seven-year cycle, but then he would be met by a runaway slave or a man playing this role who would take a branch. Instead of killing the deer, he takes the branch of a sacred tree. The golden bough is thought to be a tree filled with mistletoe, which sometimes turns very gold. So he breaks it and that's the signal to have this fight to the death. And if the king won the fight, he could stay. Otherwise, the new king would come. And Fraser's opinion was that this really happened as the Romans spread out that story and the tradition went with them. I think there's a lot of truth to that theory um, because you see it in practice. There's a cadence and a repetition to these patterns. And you see it in modern Europe. You see it in America. Like when I was a very young child, Kennedy was assassinated. And the first funeral I ever saw was his funeral on television. And I think you'll agree with me, there's, there's probably not a more esoterically laden funeral in our lifetime. I mean, what you saw with Kennedy's funeral with the black horses, the riderless horse, this is going back in time. It's not the normal funeral of state.
you know, I was uh, I was in ninth grade when that all happened. And I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was traumatic. I mean, you know, everybody was in their home, you know, watching the TV. Yes. Okay. And then, you know, and then we see a guy get murdered live on TV. Okay. I mean, that's, that's trauma. And, you know, I mean, that's the trauma based uh, mind control. And, you know, it's well, a lot of my posit that what they do to one person, okay, with trauma to try and, you know, um, smash their personality, create other personalities. They, they do the same thing to a country because a country is a one unital value, just as a person is a one unital value. So, certainly nowadays with TV, with mass communications, they certainly have that power. You may not understand what it really involves, but it's really going back to ancient pagan times where the king is killed. 